I'm going to have to talk into the mic because the reason why we are actually taping this session. So don't be afraid. <laughs> um, we are actually uh, taping this so that we can um, give the information to uh, another group. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. So I just wanted to let you know I'm, that's the reason why I'm kind of confined to this podium right now because you know, if many of you know, I can talk. Um, Welcome, welcome. I'm glad that you all came. Uh, let me take these glasses off. I'm glad you all came to our session, State of Inclusion. Um, this is actually a joint session that we're doing uh, with uh, the ALA, which is the American Library Association, and the Society of American Archivists, SAA. Uh, they came to us uh, several months ago and asked us if we could uh, jointly do a session with them on inclusion, the State of Inclusion and to look at it in our fields. So libraries, archives, and museums are actually looking at where are we at in the state of inclusion. So that's what our session is. And uh, my name is Mari Carpenter. I am the chair of the Diversity and Inclusion uh, Task Force for AASLH. And so I accepted it very, as I said, welcomed it. So that this is in this time in our um, uh, social climate, I think we need to revisit what we're doing in our own um, fields. So I wanted to actually uh, let everybody know that we do have a task force at ASLH, and I wanted to just recognize a few of our members who are here, any of the committee members that are here. Just kind of wave. So we are here um, to answer and really think about the state of inclusion. So ASLH is really looking at how we can talk about uh, and to see where we're at in the field. So I just wanted to let you know that uh, this, this session is sponsored and supported by the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. And without further ado, uh, I want to make sure that you guys get a wholesome, a great opportunity to discuss uh, with our moderator, Richard Josie from the Minnesota Historic Society, uh, or museum, I'm sorry. Um, but I want you to have a robust conversation, a very candid conversation, because um, we are, even though we're recording this and this is supposed to go into a white paper, um, I want people to really think about and ask some hard questions. Just like the keynote speaker said this morning, it's going to be taking courage, right? So let's be courageous. Other thing I want to do before I get off this mic is to let you all know that we have a mixer at 8.30 tonight. We have a little dessert, some little food, so please come and join us. If you don't get a chance to ask your questions, which, jo which uh, Richard will have you really thinking about some questions and have a very candid conversation, please join us at that mixer, okay? And then you have evaluation sheets. Please do rate us 10, okay? Everything 10, <laughs> all right? You're gonna have right, great fun, okay? So let's get to it, Richard, without further ado. <clears throat> what time is it? It's 11 o'clock. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good, good. Thank you. Peace and blessings to you all. Thank you all for joining us today um, to have uh, a necessary conversation, necessary dialogue. Um, when we think about the term inclusion and what it means, it means different things to different people. And hopefully, maybe that's one of the things that we can get to today. Uh, but today, uh, it takes a village to raise a child, and we all today are the village. And so the dialogue and the conversation that we have today 
hopefully will lead us to not only identifying challenges that we all have faced, but it's also to identify solutions. I'm a made man sort of uh, fan, so I watch that show often, and I, I live with the quote that if you don't like what's being said, you have to change the conversation. So today we want to change the conversation a little bit. The idea, or rather the ideal of inclusion in museums and historic sites is a topic discussed in many conference rooms and meeting spaces across the nation. In the last several years, many of these conversations have evolved from the need of diversity or diversifying um, to, to the conversation of creating inclusive environments. While diversity uh, uh, speaks to more of respect for difference and, 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 and also speaks to levels of representation, Inclusion speaks to more of the concept of belonging. Belonging is the feeling that we hope everyone here feels today. A Google search will lead you to hundreds of articles that speak to issues of diversity and inclusion. I've seen almost all of them. Today, we have four panelists from across the museum field from different job functions, administrative levels, academic backgrounds to come together in a facilitated conversation to discuss the state of inclusion from their vantage point. In the time that we have, we hope that we explore these challenges um, that we face in creating inclusive environments, but ultimately to see how many ideas we can come up with that we can put into action. Secretly, I'm planning on at least three. <laughs> with us today, we have and I might mess some names up, so they're going to help me. Uh, Amanda Hasso? Yeah. One for one. <laughs> Amanda Hasso is the Mexican-American and Latino community archivist at the Austin History Center, where she works to preserve and promote the histories of underrepresented communities. She is a certified archivist, and using public engagement, programming, and education, focuses on the role that community archives has in helping to empower communities. It's her goal to work with communities who are barred from access to resources in many forms, thus pushing her in the direction of preservation, access, information, literacy, and community engagement. Besides Amanda, we have Veronica Geraldo. Did I get that right? Ah, Geraldo, thank you. Uh, Veronica currently serves as the Operations and Collections Management at the Case Made Museum at Fort, uh, sorry, Fort Monroe, Virginia. In her current role, she seeks to ensure professional stewardship of collections and to ensure accessibility to material culture for the purposes of scholarly research, education, and engagement. She has a broad range of experiences in the public history field, specifically with diverse historical sites. Her main focus is in helping cultural institutions become more relevant in the 21st century by utilizing creative new approaches that provide more complete and comprehensive histories. Beside Veronica, we have Enemini Ikon. Winning. Enemini currently serves as the Chief of Interpretation, Education, and Cultural Resources at the Brown v. Board of Education Natural, uh, National Historic Site. This is where he supervises park staff who interact with visitors and school groups, leads uh, exhibit development, and works with partners in telling the civil rights history of America. Prior to joining the Park Service, he worked at Mary McLeod Bethune National Historic Site, Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, National Capital Region Headquarters, the National Mall and Memorial Parks, Little Rock Central High School National Historic Site. 
He also had and a, and, and, a, and a lot of other positions. Um, he has held positions as an interpretive ranger, training instructor, uh, public information officer, and acting park curator. And last but not least, we have Vanessa Torres. <laughs> Currently serves as the Los Angeles District Supervisor for Santa Monica Mountains um, National Recreation Area. Ms. Torres works to establish new partnerships in youth outreach and to connect underserved students and diverse populations to national parks in their backyard. She also serves as the chair of the National Park Service's Latino um, Employee Resource Group. Prior to coming to Santa Monica Mountains, uh, Vanessa served as the youth program analyst for the Department of Interior's Youth Partnerships and Service under the Office of the Secretary, serving as a uh, point of contact to the DOA Bureau's youth managers, youth employment, engagement, and diversity, dealing with relevancy and inclusion. In our planning sessions, as we prepared for this conversation, we discussed several issues that we felt needed to be on our agenda this morning. Community development, recruitment and staffing, collections practices, interpretation, accessibility, the need for associations to, uh, to address things like how can, how can organizations like ASLH or others model inclusionary practice for the field. We also talked about cultural competency. Some of these issues stand alone. However, there's some that intersect with others. For example, it becomes difficult to increase the diversity of recruitment efforts and staffing if the relationship with the diverse communities isn't on solid ground. It gets more complicated if the established interpretation of the collection processes that are in place aren't in sync with the strategy that's designed for holistic intentionality. So we want to establish this time that we have today as a team. It's an open forum for facilitated dialogue in the hopes that when we leave, we can start new conversations. Hopefully, some of you all will take some of these ideas even further, and we could continue this conversation in Kansas City next year. Before we get started, um, I've been dealing and talking about diversity and inclusion long enough to know that sometimes it can be, um, forgive me, it can get funky in the conversation. Um, Diversity and inclusion can be a divisive subject, and I know that we all are here in good hearts and good spirits to, to come and to move forward in a way. Um, what I would ask is don't hold back. Ask the questions. Make the statements. We have to put everything on the table because ultimately, as I was telling you earlier, the question that we have to answer for ourselves is what kind of ancestor do we want to be? And I, for sure, don't want any one of us to be the type of ancestor that's preferring, that can be talked about as, well, things happen, and we just didn't say nothing. So let's put it all on the table. With that, I, I got, I'm going to start with the first question. Um, I'm going to direct it to the panel here, and then I also want to open it up to you all as the audience, and let's get a real conversation going um, to start getting to the, to the meat and potatoes of some of this. So, Right now, 
What do you see as the biggest challenge regarding inclusion in the museum field? I'm going to give a couple of seconds to be a Southern gentleman and let the ladies go first, but if they don't, I, I certainly will. Okay. Um, so, uh, good morning, all. I, I would venture to say, and, and I'll be uh, succinct, um, our field is known as public history. And unfortunately, our history has never really been for the public. Um, and, and so, while, while we've, we've always designed this field to, to share with the public, we haven't welcomed the public, we haven't prepared for the public, we haven't trained for the public. And I, I, I would venture to say that our biggest challenge is that um, inclusion is, is a messy and complicated process when done right. And I think for, for many of us, it is more convenient to be exclusive and, and to share the histories that are more easily accessible than it is to, to dig up the, the dirt and the challenge of many of our, our histories that, that have been um, in many ways exonerated from the story that we should be telling. Um, and and it, has, it, it gets messier whenever we talk about who our funders are. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets messier uh, whenever we start uh, looking to our boards, our board of directors, uh, what, what our agencies and our missions represent that in some cases, in order for us to be inclusive, we have to go against our mission, which many of us are not willing to do, right? Because then we'd be out, be out of a job. And so I, I would venture to say that the, the biggest challenge in, in inclusivity is that our establishments are unfortunately built exclusively. I'll add to that and just saying, um, you know, I think relevancy is a is a big piece of uh, of inclusivity, and and one of the challenges that we continue to have, whether you're a park or whether you're a museum, um, that when we're reaching out to diverse communities, or uh, whether it, from a visitor standpoint or from a employee or workforce standpoint, that we are lacking that relevancy. Why why is this important? Um, and I think a lot of times we um, tend to fall back on the excuse of, well, people of color cannot afford it. Um, and that's just simply not the truth. Mm. Uh, you know, you look at L Latino community that has a $7 trillion buying, purchasing power. Seven trillion with a T. Um, and uh, the black community falls a little bit below that. Um, and so it's not about the money per se, uh, but it's more about that relevancy. Why is this important to me? And how do we make that a priority? And I think that continues to be one of the, the great struggles that we have in this field. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm just gonna speak a little bit about the Austin History Center. We do have a unique program where we have community archives with within a mainstream archive. So there are definitely challenges with that. Um, so even though maybe myself, um, African-American community archivist Latoya, who's here, um, and, <laughs> and the Asian-American community archivist, um, even though we're there being the, a face of the diversity within Austin, um, the challenge is that 
it sort of becomes ghettoized a little bit um, in that we, like, it's not the end-all, be-all, like, having representation. Like, that isn't solving the diversity problem. Um, it needs to be embedded in the culture of the organization, and I think that's something that we struggle with every day. Well, with my experience, I've realized that, and I think we all understand this, that inclusion really needs to start internally. I mean, yes, we do. I kind of feel like our field, we go out and we do a lot of community engagement. Um, and we kind of check off this list. But we have to allow people for, for them to share the views, for them to um, help interpretation, um, to provide some type of insight for our field to be inclusive in a way that we basically don't really do. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I want to sum this up real quick because we're talking about the in, in, exclusivity, you know, of, of, of museums. Um, we're talking about the need for relevance, you know, the challenge of relevance. Um, like we said, ghettoized. Yes. We talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the, the segregation sort of approach in, in how structures and, and all of that business, but just being part of the overall foundation of the work and the need for, um, for a focus on internal sort of mechanisms and, and structures. How about you all? What do you see as the biggest challenge, biggest challenge regarding inclusion in the field?
good point. Thank you. And I'm noting all this too, so we will come back around. Let me come here, and then I'm going to work around here. Thank you. Come here. Mm hmm. So we.
Thank you. I'm gonna come here and then I'm gonna come here. And then there. You. Thank you. Here and then here. challenges. Thank you, and I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you breaking down and, and, and furthering the, the the clarity and the distinctions between diversity and inclusion, and even in thinking about inclusion. Um, there's another term that I keep coming up that I was going to wait till later to bring up, but this, the the concept of intersectionality um, is one that, that that I'm starting to read more and more and more about. And so, um, one of the things that I I'm going to come, because sorry, I've come to come here. But one of the things that I, I, I want us to consider is um, when, when we think about our tactics um, and, and when we think about the challenges, how much do we think about our challenges in the terms of the here and now? And what, how do we foresee challenges, you know what I'm saying, for coming in the future? So, like, identity is a big thing in America. And how people identify are very in, in different ways than they than they used to. And so, how does that play into to all of this as well? It's just something to to, to consider as we're thinking about our challenges. Um, yeah, I'm 
Thank you. you. You said so much that I, I, I halfway got lost. Um, so to, to refer to a couple of comments um, that, that kind of came out, um, I, I would venture to say I never intentionally got into this field. Um, somewhere along the line when I was in my master's program, uh, I, I, want, I, I was kind of going the route of an academician. And uh, before that, I was going to dentistry school. But the, so, somewhere along the line, I had I had a professor who taught history beyond facts and figures and somehow made me realize my position in history and, and made it very relevant to me. And so I, I, I vowed to myself that I wanted to reduplicate what that professor did every day of my life in the classroom. And then while I was in the classroom, it was too stuffy for me. So I, I tried to figure out how can I expand the four walls of the classroom 
and, and then I, I, I started courting the park service, right? It, which has turned into a beautiful marriage at this point. But um, as I look at more and more people within the museum profession field, um, th there, there are a couple of uh, personality traits that, that kind of characterize a museum professional, all of which we, we probably already know, but that we've, we've made a business out of preserving stories and things and not people, which is why we've never cared about people. And, and it's, it's, it's almost inextricably bound in, in how we do business is that we care, we put millions and millions of dollars into stories and things. And, and as we're talking about salaries, that, that's what I'm talking about, is that human capital has never been a part of our mission statement. And so we've, we've always failed the people because we care so much about the story. We care so much about the artifact that the, the people, and, and so one of the questions I was asking myself as you all were talking is, what is the reward that you get from the work that you do? Part of the reason why I was so enticed by this field is because I got to talk to people. Right, as Richard said, you know, I used to be an acting park curator, and I, I got out of that as quick as I could. Right, I, I couldn't talk to things, and so there was there was something exhilarating about having this. This last year has been one of the most phenomenal years of my career, starting from November. Right, so every day of my my uh, life at Brown versus Board of Education, I, I come to work to talk about race. And starting from November, I'm, I'm referring to the election, I got a range of visitors, from the NRA hat to people crying coming through the door. And when you come to Brown, there's a black and a white sign. Right, so the conversation has started once you, you come through the door. And people, because of my uniform, will have conversations with me that they would never have as I'm in my civilian clothes. And there's, there's power to that simply because the conversation that we, we have in our dining room tables and with our close friends are the conversations that we know we can't have with the general public. And there's a problem with that. And, and we as museum professionals, we study this, we, we, we're subject matter experts in it, and we should be the foremost catalyst to changing culture, but are so mired in our mission and our institutions that we're handicapping ourselves. And so, I, I think even in our hiring practice, I'll, I'll touch on that and then I'll, I'll leave it to the rest of the panel to speak. There, there's so much to be said that we have always looked for qualified individuals. And qualified is so ambiguous, right? Because you choose your qualifications. And, and I know, at least in my hiring practices, I pride coachability over skill set. I don't care less what you know. I don't care what your degrees are, are in. If I can't coach you into cultural competence, you're no better to me than the degrees on your wall, right? And, but but that's, on our, that's not how our, our institutions are built. And so when you put out a position description, you're, you've already eliminated half of the diversity that you need on your staff, right? And so there, there's got to be um, a way to hire local, as someone was saying. When, when, you're, when you have a whole bunch of outsiders coming into the community, there's a problem there, right? There needs to be some, some homegrown talent that is earmarked in your, your hiring structure. But we, I mean, if I were to ask individuals in here who have hiring authority, you, you would give me a litany of reasons of why that's so difficult to do. And so I'll, I'll leave it there. But. Yeah, I'll just um, really quickly share a quick story. Um, 
what you were talking about, I grew up uh, 45 minutes west of San Antonio um, in a small town called Hondo. And Hondo is this, um, you know, 7,000 people, uh, majority Latino, Mexican-American, um, that has been there uh, first, second, third generation, uh, fourth, if not more. Um, but the town itself, the political power in that town is um, a majority white. Um, and I'm gonna try not to cry telling this quick story. Um, growing up there, I grew up uh, ashamed of my culture. It was, um, yeah, I'm Mexican American, third generation. And it was uh, something that was not valued uh, in that town. And so, you know, growing up uh, as a young child with my grandparents, you know, I learned to speak Spanish. I was fluent in Spanish. And as I, as I got into school and um, uh, graduated, I lost that ability uh, pretty quickly because it was frowned upon to, to speak. And, you know, there was two, unfortunately, there was two types of, um, of social groups in that town that if you were Latino or Mexican American, <coughs> you hung out with the people and you, you knew you were going to stay in that town. Um, and forever stay there and make your life there and not go anywhere. Um, but then there was the um, white people who were going to go to college and were incur encouraged to do so and, and move out and, and um, dream something bigger. Um, I'll never forget uh, when I was in high school, the counselor telling me, you need to join the army. You'll never be able to go to college because you can't afford it. And that, I think, you know, having parents who didn't have that ability, who never were encouraged, um, and were really um, encouraged, you know, my brother and I to, to go and get an education. Um, and that, I think, was what set that fire of, you know, going and learning more and, um, being able to tell our story and, and our truths. And I think <clears throat> bringing it back to the, you know, to the topic of um, you know, that multiple truth, that relevancy of, of being able to, to tell your own story and to empower people to, to learn more. Um, and I think that's how you have to do it. You have to, you know, I think everyone here talked about the challenges that we face in, in this work. And I think it goes back to, um, to not having that savior complex as we first started. Um, and that's something we struggle with in, in the National Park Service and um, in museums and uh, being able to, to go into these communities and build genuine uh, relationships with that community. Um, to say, to bring people to the table um, and say, you're here and we need your voice um, in how we're going to build this, to ensure that, that we're telling those multiple truths especially, um, you know, th this work is not new. This work did not start in November. <laughs> um, and how do we, um, how do we bring the, uh, the inspiration and the, um, the power that has come since November of these topics to light, to, um, to bring people in to do this work and to, to genuinely bring people in it to the table to, um, to ensure that everyone is included in those stories that we tell. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's why I continue to do this work. 
Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to have someone to, to tell me that, um, that I couldn't do this work. Um, but the National Park Service, like Inamini said, was not something that I uh, strived for. It was something I never knew about. Um, and I was just back home last night, and I can, uh, can't tell you how many times people say, you do what? <laughs> um, and you know, it's that you don't know what you don't know. Um, and you're not going to know your own privilege unless you begin to, to, um, to acknowledge it. So. I, I just want to say one hold thing. On, hold, on, hold on a minute. We're, we got a mic. So. I have a loud voice sometimes. <laughs> I just want to say one thing that brought to mind. I grew up in a highly Hispanic neighborhood. I grew up with um, that culture very embedded in my life. And, and this, is, this is something that I've been thinking about the last few days, is that we were only given certain choices. Um, even being, um, you know, white, you know, and now that I've done my DNA, I am very white. Um, <laughs> Um, I grew up with the choices that my uh, fellow Hispanic students did, the same ones. I went in to talk to my counselor, and he didn't say nice things. He basically said, here's the, here's the financial aid. Go help yourself. Okay? Um, so I, I was treated the same way that they were. Um, and it's, we were a working-class neighborhood. It had a lot to do with that. But um, it's just one thing that I get from that is that we needed to get. We need to give our students more choices. Um, I I went out to a high school recently and talked about libraries, and libraries as a choice of because they're taught. You if you don't want if you don't want to work locally, you want to well in my area. You can work for the agricultural industry. You can be a teacher. You can be a firefighter and a policeman, and you know and that's their choices and I didn't want people to see that anymore so I changed it so I, I'm glad you spoke to that I just wanted to share you share my story about how I think we need to give our kids more choices at a very young age you know um, to give one last point of this is I have a whole bunch of nieces and almost all of them are nurses and that's another thing that was a choice one of the only choices they were given as a female and it's pretty sad. It's like they're amazing people, incredibly intelligent, but they don't even think about being a doctor or a chemist or that they are nurses because that's what I'm supposed to be. So. And, and, and I'm, I'm briefly going to push back a little bit in Good. that the, the problem with choices is, is our young people still don't know what to choose. Oh, yeah. Right? That, that um, I, so I am a four-year-old princess, and, <laughs> and, um, and I know there's never going to be an appropriate young man for her. That, 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 that is just, and, and so I, I have already, <laughs> I've already made a commitment that whoever she likes, I will apprentice him, right? That, that I, I, will, I will make him the young man that deserves my daughter. And so similarly, I think we, we, know, we know the makeup of a good museum professional. And rather than giving children choices, that, I mean, for them, you know, do you want Snickers or, or fruits? We know what's good for them. They, we know what we're gonna, they're, they're going to choose. I think we need to, in a very loving way, push people in a direction to where they, even if they don't choose that, they have the skill set. And so I, I think with our, our young professionals, we need to begin grooming until they say, this isn't what I want to do, right? Yeah. <laughs>
So I, I'm, not, I, I'm not quite sure how to, I, I'm going to do some pushback, but the, the pushback is, is this a field we want to encourage people to go into? Um, that's the bigger challenge because, as, as you said earlier, the graduate programs for museum studies, uh, uh, historic preservation are far greater than they ever were before. I mean, they're everywhere, right? I mean, every school seems to be coming up with a museum studies program, and they're cranking out all kinds of graduates who then we can't put in the field because there's not enough jobs. The vast majority of the jobs underpay, as had been noted earlier, don't have benefits. And so if we have somebody come out into the field and they've got 80,000, 100,000, 140K in debt, and they say, oh, and look, here's a, here's a job you can make 12.75 an hour for, and you, you don't get benefits, you know? I mean, there, there's not that much there. And so for me, to, and, and this has been a discussion in my institution because they, they are saying, we, we've got to do a better job of hiring. And then we say, well, how are we going to do this? We, we can't get minority candidates in the field. Well, maybe we need to go encourage them. I, I find it a challenge that I would go to a minority student and convince them that this is a good career path for them. Unless I could say, and by the way, there's going to be a great job at the end of this path that will allow you to make a decent living and succeed in life and not be underwater in debt until you're 60. So that, that's... Um, that's a really good example. I think that my institution also struggles with that. We're located in um, Hampton, which is uh, Hampton University's predominant black. Our community is predominant black. And um, the museum that I work at was predominantly a military museum and now is a state museum. So um, for us, this is like a clean slate. We can start interpreting a lot of other histories that have not been told and not through just a military perspective. Um, one of the initiatives that we decided to do is to um, go to the Hampton University and say, hey, we're looking for internships. And I made sure that they were paid even though um, you know, that was hard to do because the concept of internships are still free. Um, that's, that's, you know, another, another discussion. Um, but, you know, it takes a while to, to grow these connections, these partnerships, and um, it's not something that it's done overnight. It's something that you have to also be able to go to other people's table and sit there and engage and listen. Like, you know, there's a, a few people talking about community engagement and um, some, of, some of the experiences that, you know, we go out there for a project or we're doing a project and we need some perspectives and, you know, we receive the information and then we leave. Um, and one thing that, that I used to do at um, Weeksville Heritage Center is I would go to a community meeting every month every month to understand what, how can we provide, what does this community that is, you know, uh, close to my museum, our museum needs from us? Why is this community not coming into our museum? Um, and that's something that it took, you know, about like a year and a half before you started seeing change. Um, so, 
one of the takeaways is that we do need to be out there more and, and um, take that time. Um, and I know that, you know, we're busy people. You know, we have to take care of other, of other things in our, our institution. Um, okay. Uh, and and I'll, I'll briefly say, and you, you can pass it on. I'll, I'll be very, very brief. Um, I'll briefly say, um, I, think, I think 40, 50 years ago, we were saying that about other professions, yeah. right? That we were saying, I don't know if I want to send my daughter into a, you know, an office and, and women, you know, receive everything that got laws passed to protect them, right? And so I think, I think every profession needs to up its, its, its ante. And I, I think someone said it earlier, we got to talk to the executive board because they're getting paid nice. They're getting paid real nice. And um, in the Midwest region, we have a program where um, if it's, it's, a, it's a Midwest region academy, if you are a college student and you choose to come to the Midwest region um, and be a part of our Midwest region academy, um, you commit four years and we will pay up to $28,000 towards your school loans, uh, up to $6,000 a year. I, I have, Whenever I go on my recruitment trail for jobs in, in the park service, and particularly in the Midwest region or coming to Brown versus Border, I, I throw that out. And that's what gets young people, because it's like, well, hold on. I don't, I don't even know about that career, but you can pay back my loans. <laughs> and so, so I, and I, I think that that's, uh, here's, here's one of the solutions of the one of the three. Um, there's too many empty seats in here. And, 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 and I'm not saying that your presence here is obsolete, but I want your exec board here I want them in Kansas City. That if, if in fact we care enough, if this is more than just people coming and paying good loot for a conference, getting some information and going back home to kick our feet up, then I really want to see your execs at the mandated to come to these meetings and build a better strategic plan for your institution. Because there, this has to go beyond a conversation. You're talking about our board. Yeah, the right. people with the money. Whoever, whoever is the, the money-making decision makers, they need to be in this group. Some of them are here. Amen. Amen to you. Not, not enough. Not enough. Yes, yes, not, not enough, but. Yeah, I was just gonna directly answer your question and say that yes, absolutely, we need to encourage um, our Latino population, our young black population, our young Asian population to really engage with their own histories. Took me a long time to really come unpack my own identity so the personal being really political and that's sort of, I would argue, a lot of what my work is. Um, and I think, yes, we wanna encourage people to kind of join this, but this is when we also need our people at the top to really start advocating for ourselves um, as information professionals. Um, in my world, that means getting city management to really understand how important archives are history is the role that we play in our day-to-day -day world a lot of our leadership doesn't even know what what archivists do so visibility I think is a really big crucial part moving forward so I work for Missouri State Parks and historic sites and um, some of our and I apologize because some of these same challenges that we face are have have already been mentioned but it's a conglomeration of them all uh, let's just start with uh, being ranked 50 out of 50 in, in wages uh, for state employees. So we're, we're starting there, got that going for us. Um, and then you have our sites spread out across the state, um, uh, historic sites around 40, um, and in uh, mainly rural areas, 
not very diverse populations, okay? And then you have a, a system of, um, of job titles that in an effort to try to get those low salaries raised up, we've given these great titles that mean absolutely nothing to anyone unless you know somebody who works for Missouri State Parks or for historic sites to know what an interpretive resource specialist or an interpretive resource technician or a park historic site specialist is. You know, that's an assistant manager, by the way. Um, and so I have 17 sites, not all with personnel, but about 35 positions within those 17 sites. So I have a very limited amount of positions to begin with. And for some reason, with this low pay and the difficulty to get involved, people stay forever. So we have a very limited opportunities to hire new staff. And so when those, those positions do become open and there's nobody on the register that has any diversity whatsoever, or they don't want to move to rural Missouri where they, there is no one that looks like them, uh, it becomes a, a huge challenge for us on that side of things. And then I'll just throw this one last little caveat to you, and that is one of our iconic African-American sites uh, is the Scott Joplin House near downtown St. Louis. Um, guess who plays ragtime? It's old white people, okay? And, and, if, and if you know somebody besides Reginald Robinson who does, please tell me because we will bring them in. Um, but we struggle on a visitorship with a site that is just so rich in African-American history to get African-Americans to come and visit and come to the performances and to come learn about the history. And it's just a challenge. It's, it is a challenge. And we try to work, we've been working with the local community and we've got a community advocacy group that really has been helping us in terms of outreach and getting the word out, but we've got a long ways to go. the Scott Joplin House and it being African-American history. And I really want to encourage us to not specifically call what is American history a specific racial or ethnicity history. Because I think that we set ourselves up for um, segmenting, if you will, our visitors and our audiences. And I tell people all the time when they come into the National Civil Rights Museum, this is not African-American history. This is American history. And it's a whole era of what happened in our country. Just like Joplin's music is American music. And I think that sometimes we do ourselves a disservice. It's kind of like what this young lady was talking about, ghettoizing these, our, our ethnicity and making it too specific. So I encourage us to yes, push forward with regard to what makes us different, but it's also the things that make us similar. And, and as you're moving the mic to whoever's next, um, I, I, I would venture to say museums have never been, and I, I, maybe I wasn't as specific in my earlier comments about public history, museums and parks used to be something for the affluent. And, and, and you went there because that, that was, and so when, when we're talking about communities coming out to hear about history that they never see unless you go to college, it, you know, that, that some of these histories haven't, haven't even been scratched K through 12, right? And so that at somewhere along the line, 
we'd say, hey, this museum identifies with your history, and they're like, well, up until this point, I haven't seen anything. What interest do I have now, right? My, the visitorship, all the, the places that I've been are a highly civil rights related, African American history. Visitorship is, in, in most cases, 75 to 85, if not 90% non-minority. And, and that's because, yeah, in most of those communities, um, particularly in parks, you know, as, as African Americans, you, what, what, what did you have going to some wilderness? Right, um, the, the Park Service was established in 1916, right? And for those of you who, who are, are kind of disjointed from the history, there was a lot going on in 19, uh, 1916 in our country. Uh, lynchings was tops, right? So if, a, as a minority, going to Grand Teton, going to the Great Smokies was not a wise idea. You would not make it back home, right? And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't say that against Arrowhead, but that, that is just the reality that when, when you have a generation of individuals who have said, don't get anywhere near where you, you can't come back home. When we talk about the Green Book, where that if mm. you were traveling and you ran out of gas, God forbid that, that you, you're in a sundown town. That, that we have to understand that some of the, the, the cultural and social practices have guarded communities from ever experiencing anything that is near and dear to them. And so that most people can't afford to lose family members for the sake of getting history. Thank you so much for pulling this panel together. And I have to say I agree, I would rather see every seat filled. Um, but I guess that's part of why we're here today. Um, a couple of things. The conversation so far has been fantastic and I've written down so many notes that I intend to um, uh, continue the conversation going with my colleagues and my friends and such. But I want to throw out a bit of a challenge. What we're talking about here is not only complicated, it's messy. And I wholeheartedly agree that we need to bring the leadership of these institutions into this conversation. Because even if you are an assistant manager, park specialist, or if you're an intern and you want to start the conversation, how are you even going to go about that? You've got an executive director who's trying to raise money, who's trying to deal with staff, who's trying to deal with the expectations of the board, and you want to have this conversation about making things absolutely better, which we need to do, but it's also really complicated. So the challenge, I think, is having us as professionals who want to come to these conferences and enjoy coming to these conferences to learn, but we can't just geek out with our history friends at conferences. We really do need to take this back to our own institutions and our own communities and start having those conversations, even if it's to say, I don't know where to start, but I'm going to start the conversation because it really needs to happen. So maybe next year when we have this conversation, we will have something to come back and report to, even if it's small successes. But I think that that's the challenge for all of us. Yeah, the, the absence of, uh, of diversity is the absence of advocacy. And I think why so many of our institutions are suffering is because we're looking for money from outside communities when if, if in fact we were relevant to our community, our community would make such a loud voice to our congressmen and our, our local governance to ensure that we were well-funded and that we, we were well-established. But, but the challenge is, is, is that our, our managers, I agree, our managers are so mired in trying to raise money because we're not getting the level of advocacy that needs to just establish our site where people are coming in and out of the doors, they know the importance of this 
building, this history being, you know, a part of our, our neighborhoods. And so we, we lose out on that. And so that's why diversity is not, inclusion is not a, a coined term. It's not a, you know, a philosophy. It is a business practice that at the point by which you say, my staff, our stories are diverse, money will come. And, 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 and I, we were talking about this earlier, that the challenge is, is if you're making a six-figure salary doing what you're doing, there, there really isn't any, I mean, you're comfortable. There's no reason to consider anything outside of what you've ever done. But until you take the risk, which is, which is a high risk, right? You can, you can lose board members, you can lose some advocacy, you can lose some dollars in, in hopes of gaining a greater uh, constituency and a greater base to ensure the future and the relevance of your site. important that I don't think we've acknowledged here today is that is those small successes. You're not going to come back in Kansas and say, oh my God, I changed the whole organization in just a year, right? Um, it, that would be amazing if you all did. Um, and please call me and tell me how you did that. Um, but that what you're going to do when you leave here and, and the, with the sphere of influence that you have um, are going to be those small successes and you're going to feel defeated um, because this work is hard and it's complicated and it takes so much time and energy and effort. Um, but it is a journey. Um, I think you said that earlier, um, that you're not gonna leave here and be fully culturally competent, right? That's just not gonna happen. Um, but that this is a journey that you begin on and that you continue on for the rest of your life and the rest of your career. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, <clears throat> I'm Will Walker. Uh, I teach at the Cooperstown Graduate Program, which is a museum studies master's program in Cooperstown, New York. We've been around since 1964. We're actually the first program that was founded specifically to train people to work in history museums. We have over 1,000 alumni. Some of them are in this room. Some of them run big large, important historical organizations. And I just want to say that why would we not want to invite people, as many people as we can, to become part of this wonderful profession that we all love, right? Why not welcome people in? And we are at, at the Cooper Sound Graduate Program, which incidentally many people know is led by Gretchen Soren, pioneering museum professional, African-American woman. Um, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's one of our core values. And we put a lot of work in every year, every month, to bringing students of color to the middle of rural upstate New York. And they come, and they're successful in the field. Um, one of my graduates just from last year is at the Field Museum working in exhibitions right now. Chief of Inclusion at the Minnesota Historical Society. Curator, curator of the Charles Sumner House Museum, in uh, um, uh, a school museum in Washington, D.C. I could go on. So I want to say that if you have students of color or other promising students that want to be part of this field, we want to have them in Cooperstown. Talk to me. We only have time for one more question, okay? I'm, I'm all the way up here. Sorry. We'll see you at the mixer. 
Um, I'll be really quick, and maybe we can squeeze in another. Um, there were a couple things. One, the question of resources. Um, there are a lot of people that have been working in this space for a long time and have been trying to develop resources. So mass action is in the process of developing things. Museums and race is trying to kind of track what's being done in the industry. And if you follow them on Twitter, follow the hashtags, um, you'll find links to resources. The Empathetic Museum has a rubric that can be used as a self-assessment tool to kind of see how your institution is doing and performing and the steps that you can take to kind of move up a maturity model kind of thing. Um, so there is work being done. There are resources being developed that are out there for people, so. Thank you. So um, as we get ready to wrap this thing up, um, a few things that come to mind in terms of, I told you I have three. What I've garnered from what you all said, um, I got a couple. Um, one is there's, there's a lot of things that are going on um, that people are doing in individual places that we, on the whole, aren't aware of. So we've got to find a better mechanism by which how we understand that what you're working on there, that's good for me to know, that's good for you to know. How do we collectivize around the work of individuals? So we've got to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to, how to get that in, in a sharper sort of way. Um, the second was, uh, and I mean, you men mentioned earlier the, uh, the, the executive board, you know, meetings of work. And um, I've had the privilege of uh, joining a handful of folks um, surrounded around the history relevance campaign. And, um, and so there's, I think there's something to be said that, and I'll, I'll be around for a little while, so I'd be happy to talk to anybody about it, but I think that's something that we all should really be starting to talk about, think about, speak in the same language. What does that mean? We, we talked a little bit about our relevance. Um, how do we all speak the same language, not only just to our public, but to, um, you know, funders? You know, how do we speak the same language to all of these people, speak with the collective voice? Like that's, if we can become more of a collective, more than just the four or five days that we're here in town for a conference, we've got to figure out how do we regularize that. Um, so come to the mixer tonight. Let's solve that. And then we'll get everybody on an email chain and tell people, you know, look here, this is where, you know, things are going to be posted. But um, with that being said, can you please give a hand for the a panel? <laughs> hand for the um, there's one question that we didn't get to get to today, and, uh, but I don't want to leave without, uh, without at least putting it on the table. And this might be a conversation um, that extends to how we, you know, expand our discourse, and that is we just spent almost about half an hour, 45 minutes just talking about the challenges, and we didn't even get them all done. What we didn't get to was, um, you know, some of the successes, some of the, you know, the direct responses to those, but the thing that's most important to me right now is the self-care that's involved. What do you do when you are in a situation where you're feeling excluded. You feel like they're not calling you to the right meetings or they're not having the right conversations. Believe me, I know I'm dealing with that now. That's the conversation 
that I hope, um, just while you're here at the conference, meet somebody that you don't know and ask that question and see where that conversation goes. With that being said, thank you all for joining us. See you at the mix of the night. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, quick, quick question. Has anybody found an iPhone out there?